Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders and practitioners to help make you a better product manager or leader. If you want to make your friends better product managers or leaders, I'd appreciate it if you could share this podcast with them on social media, email, or write them a letter, and we'll all get better together. On tonight's episode, we're talking about cutting the bullshit from product education, stepping away from the books and making sure you truly learn to make an impact. We talk about focusing on the essential, and we dig into agile and lean thinking and try and work out whose fault it is that no one likes Scrum anymore. We also find out why my guest got fired from his product job, what it taught him, and how it inspired him towards greater things. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Henry Latham. Henry's an educator, author, and entrepreneur whose first startup involves selling sweets to kids in a school playground. Don't worry, he was a kid too. Henry's the author of two books, Why Your Startup is Failing and Product Leadership Starts With You, and also the founder of PodMBA, a product management bootcamp that aims to get aspiring product managers to build a real product from idea to revenue in just eight weeks. Henry can't stand bullshit and generic advice, so I'll try and keep as focused as possible on my little book of cliches kept firmly shut. Hi, Henry. How are you tonight? Hi, Jason. I'm very well, thanks. How about yourself? I am good. Surviving the summer. Yes, suffering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> suffering, suffering, not quite in silence. So first things first, you are the founder and lead mentor at Pod MBA. So what problem does Pod MBA solve for me? Good question. I think ultimately, two years ago, when I was looking at starting another business, looking at the landscape and just seeing that there was a lot of generic advice, like a lot of a lot of bullshit and a lot of stuff that was just so out of context, right? You know, you go on LinkedIn and there's, you know, there's a great talk from Dave, product manager at Google, and it's on, you know, how to integrate analytics into your product decision making. You go, well, you know, we don't even have a data scientist at our company, or <laughs> you speak to the average product manager, they're not even allowed to integrate analytics because leadership doesn't buy into it. So so really, Product MBA came from you know my my own experience, obviously working in product like as a founder, as a consultant, as a as a freelancer as well, but also backing that up then with the research, you know, looking into the market, product success and failure rate, and also speaking to product people and realizing that you're getting a lot of product people that are very frustrated on one side because they're not able to to build product as as they're reading about it in the books, right? You go and read Marty Kagan, you listen to this great talk by. Dave at Google. Stop picking on Dave. <laughs> Point is, it's, you know, I was realizing, well, like, this stuff's just not actually helping people. So, how might we be able to offer real world, not only learning, but like get people to actually experience the process of building product effectively? So, it's really insights from me as a product person, also as a founder, really an entrepreneur, and saying, oh, there's so much stuff that people should be doing and can be doing, and they're just not doing that in their current role. So, how can we give them a sort of a space or a runway to build up these skills. And the best vehicle for that, from my experience, is just doing it. There's no avoiding that. Read about customer research, uh, and it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? Or, you know, MVP, build a prototype and you, or an experiment, and you test it. Sounds really straightforward. Do it in practice, it's very different. And we want to get people to really experience what it is like building product and, and therefore learn effectively from that process. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting and something that we'll come back to in a bit regarding things like it not being in the books, because I know that we've got some opinions on that. But yeah. before we get there, there are obviously a heck of a lot of other product schools and product 
organizations and communities out there. Yeah. And you've touched on it a bit yourself, like you want to be really practical, but but how different is Pod MBA to some of these other maybe more established schools or competing schools? Is it a replacement? Is it a complement? Yeah, it's a great question. Ultimately, our unique value proposition comes down to that hands-on and practical aspect, right? So, for example, I talked about, let's say, lean experimentation, right? If you want to go sort of lean startup approach, you know, half of that, yes, is knowing the right frameworks to use and, and principles. But half of that is the psychological struggle of sticking with something that's going to fail, not statistically fail eight or nine times before you, you might get a success. And those aren't, those aren't my facts. That's what Google and Pinterest <laughs> and LinkedIn state quite publicly. Their failure rates are around 80 to 95%. So there's a lot to be said about the hands-on practice. And that's what we promise. That's what we deliver. And that's what people come back and say, you know, when we get referrals or we get a, you know, high MPS score at the end of the program, it always comes back to that hands-on practical aspect. I have on the sales court conversations, right? Where I wouldn't even call it a sales group, application court, right? Where we have, let's say, two groups of people that might come along. Someone that comes along and says, you know, I just want a certification. I want an, either a real MBA or alternative MBA. We say, this is not the right place to come. And if you want to go get a certificate and put it on your CV, that's fine, right? So, yeah, it's going to help you in some roles, right? Get the role. That's not us, right? And don't, we're not going to waste your time, don't waste our time because we fundamentally don't believe that many traditional MBAs are actually serving the market, right? And that is, coming back from people that have spent 50 grand on an MBA, even a <laughs> product-related one. And also on the other side, we have people coming to us and saying, well, I spent a couple of grand on Marty Kagan's inspired course, for example. Or I spent six grand on the product school program. And yes, I learned some good theory, but it was the same as reading the book, really. Which is frustrating, right? From their perspective, also our perspective, I would like fewer product people to be frustrated. I would like this to not be a problem. But it, that's the feedback that we get, despite the fact that these people like, you know, Marcy King, super experienced guy, and obviously an absolute expert. And I quote him in the course, you know, we have excerpts from his books, for example, but it needs to be coupled with a, the, the frustration that I find in where the market is not serving product people at the moment is, is there's not the caveat of saying that all of this stuff is great, but you need to know Okay, when the conditions aren't perfect, when your boss doesn't buy into this stuff, like how do you get to? How do you start doing things that are actually going to move the needle? You can't just come in and be like, you know, we need to, you know, we need to be lean, or like we should just listen to our customers more. It's like, what the hell does that actually mean? <laughs> and you're not putting it in business terms. You're not, you, you know, so you need to be able to navigate the messy uncertainty of reality, and that's really where you know by getting you to be hands on and be practical, you get all of these moment these aha moments right these moments of realization of oh, i get fundamentally now why it's so important to define and validate a product strategy for example you can read about that but doing it yourself and seeing that moment where you put an offer up on a website or you do a prototype based around a very concrete product strategy and you see these customers go or target customers go wow you know yeah that's exactly what i want so that so the product people that come through our doors that they they go through that realization yeah, I think it's a really valid point and something that I've reflected and illuminated on in the past as well is like you can't just go and hit people around the head with inspired and, and you're done. Yeah, exactly. Like you need to be able to show some kind of evidence that that actually works to people who haven't read the book. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because you're coming from completely different worlds, right? You know, somebody's coming from a pretty traditional business background, you know, in terms of how they think of innovation, in many cases it is 
copying something that already exists mm-hmm. right? just maybe putting a different name on it or a different brand on it but it's fundamentally the same yeah. same business that might be a bit cheaper or a bit more expensive so, and you're coming in with all these terms like you know hey we're going to fail nine out of ten times and that's fine and you know we'll work <laughs> it out they're going to go well you know what i'm spending 500 grand a month on a development team <laughs> you know product teams that sounds like quite a big risk to me yeah, I've also reflected on the fact that certainly outside of Silicon Valley, where I'm assuming that these attitudes are far more prevalent and far more accepted, that outside of places like that, and again, we'll come on to your examples of that in a minute, but I don't think that all startups are founded by people that have any idea how to create tech startups. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like they could be people who maybe used to work for a big company and had an idea about a way to improve a thing for that big company, and it was a great idea maybe. And they had a plan to try and get there, but they had no idea how to do that other than just make a company and maybe leverage their contacts and things like that. So it's a great way to, I guess, bootstrap the business. But then when you come to actually scale that and build it repeatedly, that's when it becomes a problem. But obviously, you're talking about practical elements to your courses, or indeed that being the entire point of the whole thing. Yeah. And you're saying, for example, that it takes eight weeks to get from an idea to revenue generation so is that people coming to you with their own ideas that they already had or is that you setting them tasks that you made up and effectively them going through almost like a dummy run yeah so we've got a really unique approach and (laughs) i think it's the right one but you know you never know You (laughs) you can't think counterfactually but so ultimately we tell people to come in this is top of mind because we're starting on monday the next batch so they come in without a fixed idea and that is done very deliberately so they come in just get there's some ideation exercises we give them like how do you do some basic market analysis keyword analysis how do you dig up specific keywords or subwords in a big busy target market speak to friends family right think of your own problems they're going to come in with 10 to 20 problems we try and we teach them how to get a bit more specific do some very basic validation right is this a real problem kind of stuff now, the reason why, so two aspects of this, the reason why we don't allow them to come in with a fixed idea is because, again, if we think of, again, the reality of the lean start or lean and agile, most people, and this is the fundamental flaw that I see in the MVP approach, most people come with a very fixed idea of what they want to build. Right? So, what they're then going to be doing, they're, they're, all the information, all the data they might be gathering, whether that be some customer interviews, like, you know, really basic testing of a prototype, looking at maybe analytics. They are going to inevitably manipulate that data to serve existing <laughs> idea of what they want to build because of ego, because of excitement, right? You, you know, you've got this idea and you visualize it because as humans, we like visualizing stuff. And, you know, you've told lots of people to go, shit, this can't fail now. So your confirmation bias comes in and you're manipulating all that data to validate your hypotheses in some way. Now, again, that is a fatal flaw, but you don't read about that in many of these books. So, what we we do is, again, say, you're going to come in with lots of ideas because you're going to just speak to your customer base, through your target customers. So, like, what is going on here with curiosity and openness and objectivity so that you you don't go, oh, I want to build this solution. It's a very big difference. In the first four weeks, understanding the market, validating different opportunities, what strategies might serve those opportunities? And only then in week four do we start going, okay, what would this look like as a business or a, or a specific solution? That's part of it is, is that staying so open-minded and, and 
being genuinely agile, right? Agile is not about pivoting on a solution. It's also pivoting on a vision and a, and a strategy, right? If those things have not been validated properly. The other aspect of it is that we deliberately get students to, to build their own product, right? By themselves, right? They interact in workshops. They interact in a Q&A. They interact with virtual coffees with each other. But there is a lot to be said about them going through that process themselves because it's, you know, it is so uncertain and fraught with failure and fear and self-doubt and simple things like, you know, okay, even if you, you know, which, how do I know if an idea is a good idea? And when you start speaking to your target customer, you're getting all this different feedback. Like, you know, how do, and we give them the framework. It's like, here's how you aggregate it, flip it to opportunity. But still, they're going to go through that, that fear and uncertainty and self-doubt. And again, that is such an important experience to go through that is not talked about, but is fundamental for somebody stepping up as a product leader, right? Being very strong about vision, but still being very open, willing to question assumptions, right? So that's, that's how we approach it. It's coming super objective to go through this, this sort of journey of discovery in its true sense. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, there's a lot there to you know, there's a lot of good practices there that you probably would read about in different books. Maybe some of them all in the same book and yeah. lots of them kind of dotted around another book. So I don't think there's any controversy over some of the things you've said being good ideas. Yeah. But one thing that we discussed before this call was that in one of your early product jobs, you were, let's not mince words, you were fired. And I was curious Obviously, because you called that out yourself, that was not something I had to do too much research on. Ultimately, I guess where I'm going with this is, why should we listen to you about any of this stuff? Yeah, good question. I laugh at it now. I don't think I would laugh at it like three years ago. I think now it's funny. <laughs> you, I mean, you have to go back, I think, to when I first started out in the product and startup world. So I, I mean, I studied politics and Spanish back in eight, nine years ago. And I worked in Spain for years. So I was teaching English. Saved up money and then actually said, right, I want to learn Portuguese. I went to Brazil, was traveling by myself, learning Portuguese and was going down the Amazon on a, it's like a four day boat trip. There's nothing to do. It's like pre having internet right on your phone. <laughs> so just reading like a Portuguese grammar book. And if you think it's hot now, that's hot, right? It's like 30 <laughs> degrees. And anyway, point is, is uh, you know, sort of getting bored and, and came up with this idea for a traveling app, right? So Backtracker was a, an app where you would be able to plot your journey, track your friends and sort of share your routes and experience all this stuff. To imagine sort of Google Maps meets TripAdvisor before those were, well, they were already quite good. But anyway, point is, is I sort of got into that and went back to final year, started this business called Backtracker, put a team together at university. I know zero experience in business and product, but started sort of learning the ropes after various screw-ups. And luckily, the second year of that, raised a little bit of investment and went into an accelerator program in London. So it was then really, you know, going through like a real world MBA. And I think it's probably where the, you know, product MBA idea came from, right? Is, you know, you're around top level heads of product as mentors, like consultants, VCs as well. So you understand how that world works. And so we started doing things right, like really following the lean startup, but being, you know, stripping the product back down from these three complex features to, hey, going, okay, what, what, what's the core value? What might people want? So following a really good process. But we ultimately ran out of money the second year, like you know, endless screw-ups the first year tied us down, hiring of the wrong people, everything you can imagine, you know, ego from myself, right? Being, I've got this idea and it's great and not doing the <laughs> validation at the beginning. Anyway, so all of the screw-ups you can imagine and that, that eventually failed. But 
through that, we'd really, you know, again, gone through actually a really good process in that second year. So after that, I took a couple of freelancing things, went to Brazil and worked in a, a company there as a cross product and design. And again, was applying all of these things, really like teaching them, okay, how to like, let's build a prototype and let you walk down to the hostel down the road and test it out and iterate it the next day and do the same thing. Right. So really building up that skill set. And then fast forward a couple of years, so five years ago, moved to Berlin because I was, I was in Portugal at the time and I was doing a few, a few freelance things, but nothing, nothing sort of big, complex products. I didn't feel like I was pushing myself. So went to Berlin through one of my contacts and joined a company there. And my first job in Berlin, saying, right, I'm, you know, stepping up, bang, right. So, you know, sort of thinking again, right, I want to start a business at some point. So went in as actually a UX UI. Again, I've always bridged product because of that sort of founding background. And we're building this IoT device. And it's like, you know, the first thing I was like, why are we... So every meeting would be like, hey, oh, look at our story points and our velocity graph. And it just, you know, I'm looking around. And I, it's the first time in Germany, I was like, half the people are like, ooh, yeah, really excited. You can know, half the people are a bit like, mm, not quite <laughs> sure what we're doing here. And it turned out there was zero validation. This whole thing was like just a bullshitty business. And, um, and I can say that now because it failed. It wasn't me being <laughs> resentful because I got fired by them. But anyway, I realized it was just so much bullshit. And that, you know, just it was so against like, everything I'd felt as a leader in terms of like, how you treat your people, being customer centric, like being strategic on the product side again, like following the sort of lean startup philosophy. That I was like, why the hell? Like we're in Berlin, right? We're in this office with all these fancy screens, and there's loads of money, you know, loads of funding. Everyone's like super well paid, like really good backgrounds on paper, but we're not doing any of this stuff, right? So I started getting really. Uh, I'm not good at <laughs> working for people. I get frustrated if I don't buy into it. If I buy into it, I'll run through a wall for somebody. But anyway, you know, lost the vision there, and it was just like right, starting to look at what I would do in my own thing, and just. Start leaving the office like a little bit earlier every day. <laughs> we got to like three thirty, and I'd just be like off to the gym for an hour and a half, pop back for fifteen twenty minutes, and uh, yeah, just got a you know an email one one day, just being like, sorry, we, you know, we've terminated your contract, etc. So you know, at the time, I was like half relieved because I was I was genuinely planning to resign the next month. You know, obviously, it's always a bit of a like a slap in the face, right? It's a, a massive hit to your ego as well. Not that I was delivering much, but, but I felt I was doing enough. You know, it's the best thing that ever happened because it gives you a kick to go first. So I'm never going to let that happen again. Right? I'm never going to, if I know that I've made a decision mentally, I'm not going to let someone else make it for me. Right? If I know I'm going to resign, I'm just going to do it the same day or, you know, give it a couple of days. So that was the first thing. I think the second thing was like, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, it's not good enough to just complain like all oh, this company, you know, they're not following the right process, right? They should listen to their customers that's not good enough. You actually have to really take the thing into your own hands, right? And if you want to build a good product or work in a good product environment, you have to build that thing. You have to work very hard to find where those few companies are and then be ready uh, uh, to sell yourself and also simply have the results already from that. So in terms of coming back to the question, why people should listen to me, really, you know, it's been a 10-year journey of like really hard work, and a lot of iterations, a lot of different kinds of products that I worked on in, in those nine years or so. And I think that very unique perspective coming as a founder and coming as a real lean practitioner. I don't like the word agile because I think it's so misused, but an agile practitioner as well, right? in, in, its, in its actual sense. 
And I think that that is something, you know, that actually not many people have in terms of an experience. Again, coming back to the psychological aspect of things, uh, that's key to product leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that really resonated there was this whole idea that you can start to get into really negative thought patterns when something isn't going the way that you think it should. Oh, yeah. And obviously, part of that, obviously, as you say, is maybe on you to potentially not expect everything to be perfect. But in some cases, if you're actively being blocked or actively being sabotaged from doing the things that you think should be being done, then you can either do what you do and to be fair what i've done in the past and really get caught in a cycle or you yeah. can just leave so sounds like end of the day you've used that as a launch pad for everything that came afterwards exactly exactly and i think it'd be so easy to get into as you said like you know negative spiral with that kind of thing but i think it's it's interesting to look back because you sort of draw threads where you didn't see them at the time and it's things like you know at that point as well i've been meditating every day i've been journaling every day since you know since my first company failed really, i think that was the point where it hit me with I would call it depression, but you know, a crisis of purpose, right? You sort of, your purpose is gone with this business you've been working on like 14 hours a day. You're telling everyone about, you know, your ego puffed out with it. And I think <laughs> after that, I sort of built in some really strong self-management habits. And this is where actually my book, you know, Product Leadership Starts With You, lay the foundation, right, of journaling, meditation, like how do we use tools? And, and, and again, over time, realizing... Yeah, there's this guy that's I'm not going to name names. It's you know someone I worked with that had sold a company for I don't know, made off with twenty million from it. You look at him, it's like you you don't have you're not a centered person, right? You're not a leader. People don't respect you, and that's you know not my opinion because you know I was a contractor, so I was like you know whatever. I'm here for three months, but you start to see these threads of like you know you can have all the training or the C, you know stuff in your CV, but. If you're not, for me, it comes down to three principles, right? If you're not mindful, you're unable to really detach yourself, look at things really objectively or zoom out from things. And if you're not robust, then you're unable to, to stay cool under adversity and, you know, constant failure, which you should, should be facing. Yes, you know, things should succeed ideally, but there's going to be failure along the way. So you have to be robust as well. So you can sort of stay that sort of rock in a stormy sea. And then finally, like focusing on the essential, being really good at zooming in. Okay. You know, think of products, right? There's the one or two things that our target customer really cares about, and we just do those things really, really well, and we ignore the rest. But it's interesting as well, and we touched on this before we started recording, which is around this idea that maybe not all working cultures have the same productness about them. You know, like there's yeah. the Silicon Valley cliche that we talked about earlier, where most of the good books are coming from, and where this all really kind of started in the traditional sense that we all think about but that that in itself isn't necessarily the reality for lots of people day to day and obviously you've mentioned working for that company in berlin we mentioned before this about the types of people that you have top-down decision making in those company and lack of diversity of thought in certain areas and stuff like that now we don't need to beat a dead horse on that one with regards to obviously working culture and stuff but i guess Rather than doing that and giving them another kick, how do you advise people who are stuck in situations like that to try to move the needle in such a way that they could potentially help to start shift it? Or do you think it's completely impossible? Great question. This is a conversation I have a lot with <laughs> students and alumni. And what I say is always that ultimately there are situations where you cannot 
you know, if you're a product manager in a large organization, your, your whole leadership team is just super sales led, closed minded, right? Driven by investor needs or ego rather than, or, or urgent sales needs rather than long term strategy. There's not much that you can do, right? You just, you're in the wrong environment and, and let's just face that, right? Yeah. You know, I see sometimes people look a bit crestfallen because they're hoping for you to say, <laughs> hey, just wait for the right CPO to come in or, you know, here's a framework and magic one that's going to transform the organization. It's not going to happen. So let, let's just face that reality firstly. But secondly, that doesn't mean you just say, well, you know, whatever, nothing I'm going to do is going to have an impact. Ultimately, you need to be building up the right skill set. So you need to have a deep understanding of how do you craft a vision, for example, based on customer feedback, like identifying opportunities in the market. How do you map out product strategies within that or opportunities, for example? How do you generate ideas in a certain way? Like how do you facilitate ideation or workshops or some sort of stakeholder management, for example? There are so many things you can be doing. Now, they might not be... In, you know, For example, let's take a really top-down waterfall company. You might not be able to influence the product strategy fully, but what is stopping you spending 10 to 20% of your time speaking to customers, mapping out acute problems, flipping those acute problems into opportunities, right? and crafting then a product strategy that you see in the market that you could even start validating with a prototype, something called an MVO, like a minimal viable offer. So simply a statement of your value proposition on a website. These are all things you can do for free. Which is exactly what we did in the product here for free. And they're going to take 10 to 20% of your time. You know, we've even got a free Miro board that anybody listening can use with all of the frameworks that we use. So you can do all of this stuff. By doing that, you are, you, you're, firstly, you're building up your own skill set. Secondly, you are going to start having an impact, right? If you come to the table and you're good at storytelling and you're good at pitching data in a way that informs that story about who your customer is, what they want, what opportunity that represents in the market. You know, leaders aren't idiots, right? They're not idiots. Normally. So they just need to be put in, you need to just put things in their terms, usually business terms. Again, if you're going to go to someone, hey, I want, you know, give me a million quid to look at this thing, and you're not specific about it, about what the value is and what the opportunity is, and, and you're not pitching that well, you know, it's a huge risk for them because they know that most products fail and then most of the money they've sunk in. Has felt now whether that's their fault for you know pushing a waterfall culture or not. Not going to change the fact that you've got a lot of beliefs that you need to shift, and the best way to do that is always evidence plus storytelling. Really, so so sorry. Coming back to your point of what can you do, you know, in many cases you're not going to shift how the organisation works, but you can you can at least build up your skill set so you can then position yourself for a good product role. Because if you're not doing all that stuff, who the hell is going to hire you in a good product led company when you've just been Focusing on delivery and execution and managing sprints, for example. Like, who the hell is going to hire you? Because you're missing everything else that a good product person needs. So, build up your skill set is my advice and um, start trying to move the conversation at work as much as possible. Uh, some excellent advice there and hopefully inspiring for a couple of people listening to this. But you have written a couple of books. You've written uh, Why Your Startup is Failing and you've written Product Leadership Starts With You you've mentioned before now obviously talking about those books in detail would be a podcast episode in its own but helicopter view what's the value proposition for each of those two books well let's start with why, why your product is failing it is about these, these sort of three foundations that i see is essential to 
really effective product leadership, right? So the first one I talked about, and that, that's what uh, product leadership starts with. That's what that book is about. Is really digging into these three these three principles. So being mindful, what that is, why that's important, how to approach that in the context of, of product, and being robust. So again, being able to really, you know, great. You can read about iteration, experimentations, doing it in practice, and sticking with it. Very different. And then finally, focusing on the essential. Right, so being able to really separate what's important from what's not and, and build, you know, say no to many things in product. So that's that sort of first layer and it starts with you, right? If you are not robust, if you're not mindful, if you're not focused on the essential, you can have all the second layer stuff. So a great team or the third layer stuff, right? Great frameworks and principles. You're not going to be effective, right? You're going to be overwhelmed by the reality, the uncertainty of the real world, right? So. Why your startup is failing is really looking then at these three. Firstly, really digging into the literature on startup and, and product success and failure rates, all the themes and trends there. And then really looking at these three foundations. So building yourself up. And then how do you build a good team? Really looking into things like psychological safety and certain practices you can do to build trust and lead effectively. And then thirdly, really digging into a stripped down version of the lean startup model. That's how I would describe it. So in terms of value proposition, I think really, it, for me, it comes down to, look, there are lots of great and, and much better books on how to do a lean <laughs> process. Teresa Torres has come out with a really nice book as well on things like customer insight. I think it's, it's just simply you know, realizing again that it's not just about frameworks. We put so much emphasis in our culture on formal education. Sounds ironic, right? Somebody that sells education. <laughs> but on formal education or traditional education. Put very little emphasis on what, what actually the ancient Greeks would term philosophy. Right? So philosophy wasn't this like high-minded thing of you know dudes sitting in a ivory tower talking about the meaning of life. It was actually about okay, what are practical skills and lessons that we can take to apply to be effective in the real world. So philosophy is much more about again how do you navigate? Yeah, you know, if you get bankrupt, if you get fired, for example, <laughs> and, and these kinds of things. Again, we, I feel like the more conversations I have, the more un, I wouldn't even say ill prepared, I think unprepared we are to navigate the reality of the world because we're cushioned off in this sort of weirdly artificial school environment or university environment. And it's like, okay, well, here's the real world. And it's, yeah, a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Hopefully, a couple of people will uh, go and read those now and, and find out a bit more. But you also called out just now and a couple of other times throughout this talk around frameworks and around yeah. agility and i know that you are not for example a fan of scrum it's not uncommon for people to be against scrum these days or start to complain about it so lots of articles around how this is the end of scrum and yeah. how the framework isn't fit for purpose anymore and so forth but what's your problem with it specifically and what's your alternative yeah, and that's that second point. I think it's the important one. What's the alternative? Right, easy to criticize. I think my problem is it is is as with most things in theory, it's great, right? If you look at the the, the principles of Scrum, it's well. Let, let's say sorry. Let's look at Agile principles specifically, right? So everyone would agree with it. It's about sort of moving quickly, listening to customers, etc. If we look at Scrum itself, I think the problem with it is that there's an it's easy to misinterpret. Right, so proponents of Scrum will say, well. There's no fixed way of doing it, right? Like it's not actually about two-week sprints. It's not actually about a retrospective. It's not actually about velocity. 
It's about agreeing on a certain sort of thing we want to achieve and we're, you know, we're going to set a deadline for that. That's high level. Now, the problem is that when that is translated into action, the way it is interpreted or the really how Scrum is understood is simply these rituals lacking substance, right? So, it's sort of empty shell. And I see this constantly where teams are... Too many teams are practicing it as a means to manage velocity. And in my view, there's therefore a problem with the topic, right? Whether that's the fault of the original theory or how it's practiced, simply that's what's happening, right? So let's talk about that thing that's happening right now, which is that everyone obsessed with velocity. And obviously that doesn't matter. And I think it's too easy, you know, it's too easy to, to focus on velocity because, you know, firstly, humans are very good at, we're not very good at focusing more than one thing. So if, and we're going to we're going to act on what we measure, right? So what is measured is I can't remember the exact phrase of that quote. Anyway, so if we're measuring <laughs> velocity, we're going to optimize for velocity because that's the thing on the big graph, or that's the thing that developers are paid for or judged by, right? So we're going to see that trend. Secondly, I think it's a very easy metric because it takes away the uncertainty of product. Right? It makes us feel like. Or we've got control of this thing. And yeah, you know, we got this, we got this. We're moving towards that goal. And again, ultimately, velocity doesn't matter if you are lacking, if you're working the wrong thing. And it's too easy to, to shift our focus onto, and that, that's really my core problem with Scrum. It's, it's, an, it's an easy excuse to shift focus to velocity instead of having these hard conversations. Now, in terms of what the alternatives are, I think it's not really about, you know, because ultimately, we need to be efficient. So, if you're going to manage developers, particularly of like big complex projects, like we need to get stuff done. So there needs to be organization there. Um, I think so. If it is an environment where you have Scrum within a very strong, genuinely agile, like genuinely lean culture, that's fine, right? So, when something's the work has decided upon, like that's been really well researched, it ties in with a coherent product strategy. There's a lot of evidence in terms of the quantitative data, the qualitative data. I think, however, in most companies, the alternative to come into the important question, the alternative is ultimately any way that you are defining what outcome you want to achieve, how you're going to measure it, and then actually reviewing the thing once you've delivered it. That's the most important thing. Now, that can be a simple Kanban board, right? We have the backlog, what we're working on, things in review, so or awaiting results, review and done can be as simple as that. Now, you could tie that within like an OKR framework, for example. So, you've got, you've got a sort of, okay, here's the high-level strategic stuff that we're working on. And then here's what we're working on like this week to try and help deliver on that, you know, that current strategic goal, for example. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really interesting, the idea that even if the people that wrote the Scrum Guide didn't mean it to be interpreted the way that it obviously often is, to your point and other conversations I've had, it might still be their problem to solve. Exactly, because it, it's not an edge case. It's not an edge case. If it was like, oh, you know, 20, you know, people that are selling alcohol, let's say cigarettes, right? It's like, well, not our fault if everyone gets addicted. Because no, it's a better example because most people are, but you say <laughs> drugs, for example, like recreational drugs. Like, okay, well, 20% of people get addicted, but it doesn't mean that they're inherently like, Weed, for example, is not inherently this like terrible, terrible thing. You know, it's, it's an easier argument to make. Now, if you've got eighty percent of teams 
operating according to what they how they interpret at least how they interpret scrum to be yeah then i feel that there's a responsibility particularly if they are selling courses pushing scrum training which most of these people are they have a least in my view like a moral responsibility to at least caveat heavily that you know you can't just have a footnote being like oh by the way you shouldn't just focus on velocity that needs to be (laughs) forefront it's like hey scrum is great but it needs to be within this you know it needs to be within a coherent vision a coherent product strategy and you need to be doing this discovery work before you commit to building anything or managing your your time in in a more structured way Oh, absolutely. So where can people find out more about what you do or get in touch about any of your work or have a chat about product? Sure. Uh, best thing to do is follow me on LinkedIn. So go to linkedin.com slash Henry Latham with an M. Or you can also go to prod.mba and we've got a free seven-day mini MBA series. If you just add your email on there, you get a couple of our frameworks and sort of approaches and uh, some career advice as well. It's thrown in there. So it's the best place. Sounds like a fair offer. So yeah, that's been a fantastic chat and obviously really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your thoughts and experiences. Hopefully we can stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much, Jason. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. As ever, I hope it was inspiring and insightful. If you enjoyed this episode, there's much more on the website, onenightinproduct.com, where you can check out some of my other interviews with thought leaders and practitioners. Sign up or subscribe on your podcast app to make sure you never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.